0: The heads of four leading computer game companies are selecting the best feature of the Atari XE game system. The system with the power to play computer games. Gentlemen, your decision? Computer animation! One at a time, please. Loadrunner Runner has 150 levels. High-tech animation is the story on the XE. Sound effects are a must for summer games. The XE practically sings. Flight Simulator
1: needs computer power. Only the XE has it. But look at the great graphics on hardball.
0: So what's a great game system for playing your computer games? The Atari XE! They agree. Hey guys, it's Wade from Inverse Itasky. Do not forget me. Shhh. When I heard you were starting an ST podcast, I was excited because, as you know, there aren't any. I had one back in the Ferg. I want to hear more about the carts, and to be honest, I didn't remember the ST having a cartridge slot. Um, it is X, E, not S, T. Oh, well, um, in that case, uh, well, Back in the Ferg, I didn't have an XEGS, but I did have an XE. Does that count? The XE was the last 8-bit I had, but my favorite 8-bit was the XL. I only had a handful of carts for the 8-bit, though. The first one I got was Pac-Man, and I got that cart with the Atari 800 when I bought it. It was the only cart I had at the time, and the 800 only had 16K, so it was pretty useful, wasn't it? Most of the carts that I acquired over time were productivity carts, and most of the games I had were not the official carts, or discs for that matter, if you catch my drift. I'm eager to hear what you have to say, so Atari now has virtually complete podcast coverage, barring the ST. Now, who's up for that? Anyone? 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 Anyone?
1: EGS Card by Card Podcast the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer to the Apic Gaming System In our origin episode, Codename Zero we give an overview of the XE Gaming System talk about the direction of the podcast and give a little background about our hosts Now, let's crack some eggs with our hosts Bill, David, and Michael
2: Welcome, everybody, and fellow Atarians, to the first episode, episode zero of the Atari Zegs Cart by Cart podcast. Woo-hoo. We're all ha- hooray! Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> down the house, guys! Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're all happy to be here. I'm really excited. We've got, we've got, I'm, I got awesome company. I got Michael. I got Bill. We're all enthusiastic. We love the Zegs. We love the Atari Eight Bit line and we're going to have a lot of fun with this um a podcast and also this podcast is the for the people we are the people's podcast so we want to hear from you we want you guys to be involved in this podcast so please uh you know co- feel free to contribute uh send us um you know your thoughts send us texts send us you know on the twitter account you can send us emails uh, audio submissions, um, email submissions, we just want to make sure that this is a place where people who appreciate the Atari Zegs or the Atari XEGS system can come and visit on most likely a monthly basis. And before we get started with uh, m- uh, most of the content, uh, we'll um, talk a little bit about ourselves. So um, we'll introduce each other. So my name is David. And I'll be uh, doing the show with my co-hosts Michael and hey. uh, Bill. Hello. And uh, right now, uh, we'll let we'll talk a little bit briefly about um, about ourselves. So, uh, Michael, go ahead, take it away. All
1: right. Well, um, some of you guys might already know me from the uh, soft, uh, sorry, the Player Missile uh, podcast. I do the soft side uh, uh, articles. And I've uh, been doing that for about three times now and uh, got into the podcast because, actually, David, uh, you uh, got in touch with Rob, and Rob used my passed my name around because I had said I wanted to do something at some point in time, a full podcast, but I thought I'd start at really small and get kind of you know, ramped up to it and figure out all the ins and outs of it. So uh, my uh, if you've listened to my origin story, uh, I spoke a little bit about how I got into uh, computers. I started actually off... And the arcades, like most of us, uh, playing the arcade games. And then my, uh, my dad actually got a Pong, brought that thing home, which is uh, fun for about five minutes. You only play that thing back and forth, and then you get bored of it. And then uh, one day, I opened up a, uh, one of those little inserts in a newspaper, and a 2600 uh, insert fell out. And I wanted one so badly. So I think it was about a Christmas or two later, I finally got one, begged my parents to give me one, and got that. So one of the, one of the inserts? Yeah, just the insert. They just give me a picture of the twenty six hundred. I don't get yeah. those things were expensive. Yeah, you know. Uh, so then, of course, you go up and get uh, games at the local uh, computer store, and they had the uh, the eight hundred in the back. And man, Star Raiders was playing on that thing, and I just fell in love with it. And I I grabbed all the little flyers again, back to things I get to look at and not actually play with. And then eventually, with some uh, coaxing, my parents had to sell my mini bike. But uh, I got my 800. And then from that point on, uh, upgraded the 130 XE and then the ST and the Falcons. And then my sister-in-law gave me, or sorry, my stepsister got me a 7800. So uh, I'm kind of an Atari fanboy, Been that way for quite some time. But now that I'm older, I'm just a fan of old computers. So I collect whatever I can if the right price comes along, because I'm also cheap. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, done so a lot of cash flow, so that's um, that's pretty much about me. I mean, I uh, I'm I also would like to do a little coding. I do know 6502 and 68,000, but I'm not a great programmer, even though I do it for a living. That um, I uh, I mostly test software and then uh, do some coding as well. So, but uh, getting back to that old stuff is always difficult to, to do because I mean, you know, it's 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 time consuming and so many other things to do. In life, that uh, sitting down and coding in you know, a programming language usually isn't the top of my list. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm glad to be here and I hope I uh, contribute a lot to the to podcast.
2: You definitely will. Thank you. <laughs> I can tell that right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bill, uh, what do you got to say about yourself?
3: All right. So I, uh, I started out inheriting my brother's uh, Timex Sinclair 1000 and had that for about a year. Um, That was when he got his Commodore 64, and boy, that was a cool machine. And then uh, I think it must have been a birthday, maybe it was Christmas. I can't remember. I was, uh, I'm gonna say eight, maybe seven. I don't even remember now. I got a 1200 XL, and I have it to this day. It is set up on my desk at home. Um, Wow. And I still fiddled with it. I was playing a game on it today. Um, But uh, but yeah, so I uh, had had 1200 XL. um, Eventually, grabbed a couple 800 XLs. uh, Got rid of one of them, and I've got that one. Uh, sitting around, hooked up with all my game systems uh, with a PAL Antic chip in there for some of the European stuff, but um, yeah, I, uh, I I didn't really ever get out of the Atari, so it's not like I got back into it. Um, and yeah, uh, people might know me from my uh, modern quote-unquote segment from the Antic podcast. Uh, I basically ended up landing myself a job there after complaining to them, boy, you guys sure talk about old modems a lot, isn't there? You ever going to talk about some of those cool new stuff that's come out since, I don't know, 2000? So they said, sure, do it. And I'm like, oh, crap. Um so, so yeah, and and uh, this will be interesting because um, I didn't have an XEGS uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I haven't met- mentioned that one, obviously. Um, and you know, I remember seeing the commercials for it and the stacks and stacks of cartridges and the kid playing super slow ass. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, what, was, what do you call it? Um, flight simulator, flight simulator two, whatever it was oh, on yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, and you know, kind of looking at it and going, yeah, Atari's trying to compete with Nintendo again. Because at that point, I had an NES. Um, but you know, I, when I had the NES, you know, I was happy for them because when I had the NES, I was thinking, man, the Atari could do all this stuff. Oh, all right, why don't we have these cool games for the Atari? And it, it took about you know twenty three years, but now we're starting to get into some of them. So, so yeah, so it'd be interesting to to go through some of the um, the cart titles that I had never played before because um, my cart collection was, uh, I think, Popeye and Qbert and Basic. I think oh Delta drawing when I was a kid, and I eventually inherited a few more, and I've got I don't know maybe twenty total, twenty five carts. So I'll be using the emulator a lot, but um yeah, yeah just, that's yeah, me.
2: Yeah, just to uh, elaborate, uh, or just to uh, let, 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 the, let the listeners know is um, when we're reviewing the games, I will be actually playing on the original uh Atari Zeg's hardware using the Atari Max uh flash cart. So I'll actually be using the original equipment and just as Bill mentioned, he'll be using an emulator.
3: You know I like, actually got I got a I got a Max flash so I should probably I should probably think about using that too.
2: Okay. Didn't and, occur to uh, me <laughs> No, no, no problem. And Michael, you are going to be uh, reviewing the games. How are you going to be doing it yourself? I'll be
1: doing the em- emulator until I get myself uh, at least an uh, old uh, 800 or 800XL. Or, uh, so, yeah, I'll be emulator. Okay. So I hear some of the emulators don't exactly represent the games as well as the real thing. So it'll be interesting to see the differences.
2: Now, I do know that apparently there are uh, certain Zegs games mm-hmm. that will not work on a 400-800.
1: Yeah, correct.
3: Yeah,
2: so uh, well, we'll deal with that as time goes on. Well, well the eight hundred. Um, well,
1: well, I was going to say the eight hundred for me would be just for nostalgia purposes. I definitely want to get something like an eight hundred uh, XL for the the workhorse. But uh, well, no,
3: what you, what you do is you get an incognito board. But we'll talk uh, about true. that some other day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or or refer to antique episode whatever. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I know about the I I've read the Atari posts and the uh, the gentleman in Poland who actually makes the incognito boards. Like I was talking to Michael a couple of nights ago, uh, he's made a couple of runs of it. Of course, by the time I get around, uh, (laughs) they're all gone. So uh, hopefully, I don't know. uh, I mean, it takes a lot of time out of his life to do them. Hopefully somehow maybe there'll be enough demand uh, to stimulate a third run because I do have a beautiful Atari 800 in all its glory. And I would love to uh, be able to upgrade that and have that as my main machine. Because what I love about the Atari 800 is the fact that it has four ports.
1: Yeah, exactly. For
2: my imaginary four, my imaginary four-player um, games that uh, my imaginary friends will come over <laughs> with <laughs> three other joysticks and play with me. But you know, you never know. You got to be prepared, right? Because that's right, that may happen one day.
1: Yeah, you might yeah. have a party and everybody wants to gather around the old Atari and play some games.
2: That's right. Dan yeah, some
1: cool. dandy and some mule. Yep.
3: Yeah. Mules, yeah.
2: That's right.
1: The two I can think of.
2: <laughs> okay, so um, I'll just talk about myself uh, just briefly. I'm kind of a very uh, I don't know if you want to call me e- eclectic, but I'll just try to without boring everybody, I'll just try to give a, a quick rundown of how I got where I am. Um, my first uh, exposure to like video games was, of course, pong. Oh, yeah. uh, visiting my uncle and aunt. That was, again, back in the 70s. Went down to their basement, and I saw this contraption with two knobs on it. Uh, turn it on, and I was just enthralled for the fact that I was actually moving something on the screen. Yeah. So for me, even though it was Pong, it was super basic, but it was just still an amazing thing that you were actually controlling what you were seeing on the screen. Uh, then that later went to handheld games. Like, I don't know if everybody remembers football. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Coleco football or stuff Mattel. like that and then the I Mattel had uh, yeah. yeah then I had the Coleco Pac-Man that little handheld arcade thing mm-hmm. and I think then... I had that one
3: I remember a space game it was a two-sided you, you had two mm-hmm. players one on each side and it had basically the screen in the middle so you could see from both sides and that was you know I, I you know I dug it up on the internet one time but yeah I, I kind of still wish I had that cuz it was just a neat little thing to look at just mm-hmm. it, gl- it glowed so nicely
2: mm-hmm. yeah and uh then from that I remember Again, really early in the '80s, I had a friend. He took me over to his uh, house, and he showed me this thing called a Vic Twenty. And then uh, he hooked it up, and it was hooked up to a tape drive. So he loaded a game. Uh, we went home and came back the next day. Then yes. it was ready to play, <laughs> and it was uh, it was just amazing. <laughs> Holy crap! Like I'm actually, we're actually playing a game on this thing. Yeah. Um, then I remember he had that, and I remember salivating. Uh, for the Timex Ty- 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 Spectrum, because it was like ninety nine bucks, yeah. and I was thinking, holy, you know what? Maybe somehow I could afford that. And it came with a printer for forty nine bucks too. Yeah, I can't remember. Oh, what the th-
3: the thermal one.
2: Something like that, but for print, yeah. for printing receipts, yeah, <laughs> I know. But at the time, you know, and, and of course, yeah, you know, no. back in those days, you had the cat, you had the computer magazines where you could type all the code, right?
1: Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I was thinking
2: about, wow, if I could get that for ninety nine bucks plus the printer, you know, type in the code, I could play all these uh, awesome games. But anyway, alas, uh, that ninety nine dollars didn't materialize, so away with that. And then, as I mentioned on the uh, Atari fifty two hundred Super podcast. Uh, I my mother bought uh, from the States an Atari 5200. And that was my actual full-fledged console, my first uh, video game console. And, uh, you know, again, good memories with my brother playing all kinds of uh, two-player games, especially Wizard of War and uh, Missile... Um, that wasn't Missile Command, sorry. Um, it was um, Star Raiders. You know, Star Raiders, but the 5200 version. Yeah. Um, then from that, you know, that, now I'm around high school time. I'm... Um, Doing a computer class. And what have we got in the class? Computer pets. Sorry about that. I meant to say Commodore pet, not computer pet. My apologies to Commodore users worldwide. Now, back to the show. So I remember playing Star Trek, as I was t- telling Michael a few nights ago, playing mm-hmm. the Star Trek game. Yep. And I remember, uh, you know, my first little... Uh, my first little sneak into coding by using that all powerful command list and seeing how, and seeing where the energy values were and, you know, (laughs) ranking those up to insane proportions. Oh yeah. And I, and I actually remember I was so, I was so enthralled with what I was doing. I remember there was the actual credits of the guy who actually uh, uh, designed the game. And I remember changing it to my name (laughs) And (laughs) and then my computer teacher giving me some kind of frown, uh, looking at me, <laughs> sort of like, are you really going to do that? But anyway, um, and then, of course, my best friend, Chris, uh, back from high school, he had a Commodore 64. So uh, I remember going over to his place. And again, you know, he had a, he he obviously had well, he, he had the awesome floppy disk drive at the time. Right. So instead of having to come back the next day, we actually were able to go outside, do some stuff, you know, and then later come back and the game was ready to play. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm being a little facetious with how long it took to actually, but, you know, it, let's put it this way. The old days, you know, you had a little bit of spare time while you were waiting around for the game to load.
1: I used to, <laughs> used to go make lunch when my tape, I used to load, um, um, was it uh, Pharaoh's Curse? Mm-hmm. And I'd start the play, i mean, yeah, start the play, walk, go get lunch, and then go eat my lunch, and by the time I came back, the game had loaded up. But it, and sometimes it wouldn't even load at all, so you had to start over again. So, oh, yeah, no. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah.
2: So, um, I'm also a member of uh, Pug, which is Toronto Pet Users Group, which is a Commodore uh, users group. It's been around since, I think, the late 70s. Of course, I joined 30 years late. <laughs> and uh, basically, we hang out once a month and uh, we look at all these uh, really exciting retro um, projects and stuff. I had a, one of our members, he turned a, a Commodore pet into um, into I think it's called a color pet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I think he had a write-up in some, uh, magazine. Also, one of our members, his name is Leaf. Um, he's just come out with a Wi-Fi module for the Commodore 64. Wow. So I remember we were at the meeting and he's typing on his cell phone and it's going to the Commodore 64. The Commodore 64 is typing it up on the, um, on the screen. So, so
3: we need to kid, we need to kidnap that guy. And uh, no, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Je- jealousy there. Sorry. No no, no, no. But
2: it's just amazing. He's an engineer, I believe, as his background, but he just does amazing stuff. I even saw he even did once um, he created a glove, uh, better than a power glove, not that in- Nintendo monstrosity, but a real right. glove, uh, which uh, he actually showed at one of these World of Commodore um, um, uh, events where he was actually controlling this space shooter. With mm-hmm. his uh, fingers and his hand movements. Wow. So, yeah, he's just amazing at the stuff he can do. Uh, um, one of the th- reasons uh, also why I was really interested in this uh, podcast was what I liked about the podcast in general, the Atari podcast in general, is that um, it's like uh, when you listen to the podcast, it's sort of like um, visiting with, let's say, friends and discussing stuff that you really are interested in, Right. Right. So I wanted an opportunity to do that as well, give back to the community. And um, and also I wanted uh, the podcast to be a little bit accessible also and help people that maybe were thinking about getting into the retro uh, community, uh, especially with the old video games and stuff and try to, you know, make it more accessible uh, to them. And so that maybe we'll, you know, grow the community and the community gets bigger. We'll have more homebrew projects and And I'll be broke forever, and I'll be (laughs) buying brand new carts, and I'll never have a home. and eBay
3: prices will skyrocket. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Anyway. What do you
1: mean will skyrocket?
2: Yeah. They are uh, skyrocketing. Yeah,
3: yeah, Yeah. I've noticed. I've noticed.
2: (laughs) And another reason I'm doing this podcast is so that I actually can force myself to make the time to actually play all the stuff I'm hoarding.
1: Yeah, that's a so, good idea.
2: You know, this way I actually pull out my eight bits every so often. I put in the games or whatever and I actually, you know, use the system. Right. So it gives me another reason to actually um, pull the stuff out and give it a whirl. Right. Keep those capacitors working. That's mm-hmm. right. Does so, it, do
1: you guys have enough room for that stuff? Because I, my collection as it grows. I mean, I know I'm going to have to have a new house. Because I'm not I a collect. Just- I'm not a collector. I'll say you're not a collector. Oh, I'm you're not one of those player. then. You're not I'm like not me. I'm not one yeah. of you guys no, trying
3: to save <laughs> the world.
2: <laughs> well, I am a recovering collector. <laughs> so just remember that I had the collecting bug really bad, but I've kind of uh, been able to control it and to a degree. So I basically said, okay, David, uh, you're only going to collect for your Atari systems and for your Commodore systems, and that's why I don't have a ColecoVision. I no longer have an Intellivision. Uh, sorry about sorry about that Intellivisionaries, if you hear this. <laughs> and sorry, Willie. I That's know just I've, one
1: more out there for them. I've committed okay. sacrilege.
2: Mm-hmm. I've gotten rid of the ColecoVision. <laughs> and I got rid of... And I have to say, you know, I, I, well, you know, it's like we're, in a, we're basically right now in a collector's anonymous meeting right now. So I might yeah. as well come clean. And I also uh, was able to... Uh, Alleviate myself from my Atari fifty two hundred.
1: Yeah, well. <laughs> so
2: I'm basically down to. I decided. Okay, David, choose what you're going to spend your time in. So I got well, a 26 so, – Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, the Atari eight bit. You know, you've chosen wisely. Mm-hmm. In yeah. my opinion.
2: <laughs>
1: Plus, also, you got to focus your money. I mean, think about all the homebrew you want to support, and that's mm-hmm. it gets expensive. I mean, yeah. these things aren't cheap to make, and no. these guys got to make a little profit. So, that's it. you got you to focus your money somewhere. I'm, I'm still in that um, early stages. I mean, I used to collect, um, or at least I tried to, and then I just started throwing things out. Not, not anything worthwhile, but like I threw out a 5150 keyboard, and I think, why did I throw the thing out? I could use that now. So, you know, I've. Mm-hmm. I've made the mistakes. I'm now back to the collection, but maybe that's, you know, at some point in time, I'll be at your guys' level and just give it to good homes.
2: Yeah. So that's what I were. You know what? I decided to go, you know what? Just keep what you're actually going to use and buy what you're going to play. Exactly. So anyway, now that I've come clean from all my addictions. (laughs) Thanks for sharing. So, Michael. Yep. Purpose of the podcast. So what's
1: the purpose of the podcast? <clears throat> well, um, we're in the same vein as the other podcasts out there for the Atari, like the 5200 Super Podcast, 2600, 7800, Lynx, Jaguar. Boy, there's a lot of podcasts, aren't there? Player yeah. Missile. I've I, I named them all. Um, and each ed- episode is de- dedicated to one or two games uh, for a particular computer or gaming platform. And our focus is going to be in the last incarnation of the 8-bit computer line, which is the XE game system. Um, since the Zegs is not a simply a game console like 2600 and, and it's a full-fledged computer capable of running almost any game, uh, any program available for the 8-bit computer, or Atari 8-bit computer, I should say. Uh, we're narrowing our focus on cartridge releases, and we're going to treat um, the Zegs as a video game console. Uh, we're specifically uh, reviewing almost every Zegs game, uh, branded game, and the Atari released between 1987 and 88. But we'll occasionally talk about other cartridges for the 8-bit uh, games, including, or the 8-bit system, including um, homebrews. Uh, to hear even more about Atari 8-bits as a home computer platform, you know, you can tune into the Antic podcast, um, Player Missile, Inversitasky, Tasky, which uh, they, they focus primarily on pr- productivity software. And since the 5200 sub- Super System, it, it was a close cousin to the 800, uh, check out the 5200 Super Podcast while you're at it. Okay, um, on to uh, Zeg's history. Bill?
3: All right, so um, going back a little bit before the Atari 8-bit computer, in 1977, Atari released their VCS, their video computer system, um, which was later known as the 2600, uh, back when the 5200 came out a couple years later. Um, And it was not the first uh, cartridge-based home game system, but it was by far the most popular. In 1979... Uh, Atari announced, and then later in the year they released their 400 and 800 personal computer system, which was the first of their uh, 8-bit line of uh, home computers. Um, They took a lot of the VCS's features to the next level, um, and were therefore powerful multimedia systems compared to the other systems of the day, like the uh, PET and the Apple II. Um, So moving ahead, in 82, they released the 1200XL, uh, which was the next in the 8-bit line, but that was a little bit short-lived. We'll get to that in a sec. Uh, also in 82, and this was kind of in response to uh, Mattel's Intellivision and Coleco's ColecoVision systems, um, which were definitely a lot more powerful uh, than the 2600 uh, VCS at the time. Um, they created the 5200 Super System, um, which was a home, ba- home game console based on the custom graphics and sound chips for, from the 400 800. So it wasn't uh, completely compatible, but it was basically, you know, I remember seeing a lot of magazines where they'd show you know, Frogger for all the different game systems. And the 5200 and the 400, 800 XL, uh, XL versions always looked identical because they basically just copied the code over and changed whatever they needed to uh, for the 5200. So, so that's why we call that one kind of a, a close cousin. Um, so in 83, uh, Atari replaced 1200 XL with uh, the 600 XL and 800 XL system, uh, 16K and 64K, respectively. Um, but then, 1984, the crashes happening, and Atari is purchased by Jack Tremell and becomes Atari Corp. Um, they actually split up. Uh, the arcade uh, chunk went, uh, I believe, first to Namco, and then eventually spun off on its own as Atari Games. Uh, but that'll be hopefully another podcast, uh, Atari yeah. Arcade Game by Game, <laughs> <laughs> Coin Up by Coin Up podcast, <laughs> and then they'll have the the sub podcast for the couple of pinball games. Now, anyway, yeah. Let's finish uh, so, uh, this one first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, plenty to do. Um, so in 85, uh, at around the same time they were introducing their 16-bit ST computer, um, Atari replaced the XL line with their new 65XE and 130XE, um, which were 64K and 128K, respectively. Um,
2: okay. Thank so, you,
3: Bill. uh So we're going to let David talk now specifically about the year that this podcast system is coming out, the XEGS.
2: Okay. So, uh, it's 1987, and it's the height of Nintendo's popularity. And Atari launches uh, the Zegs. Now, uh, just to give you a little bit of backstory on the Zegs, I was speaking to our podcast friend from across the pond, Kieran Hawken. And uh, he wrote an article in Retro Gamer issue 124. And, and I'm going to give you a little bit of an excerpt uh, from his uh, article, and uh, it'll give you a little bit of a hi- history of how the Zegs came to be. So basically, it's 1987, and it's clear that Nintendo was taking over the North American video games market, and Atari needed to do something about it. Its two uh, new XE machines hadn't been successful, as Jack Tramiel and the board of Atari wanted, so it most likely referring to the 65 and 130 XEs. Um, so basically, the company took an unprecedented step uh, by meeting a lot of the retailers of the day and asking them exactly what did they want to see on their store shelves. So uh, basically, their feedback was parents looked at the NES or the Nintendo enter- Entertainment System as, uh, as just a games console. And, uh, but the parents wanted actually a computer to help their kids learn at home. And Kieran writes here, even if the kids found very different uses for them. Now, so uh, these retailers told Atari that they wanted a games console with the latest arcade titles to appeal to the kids, combined uh, with a computer to appeal to the adults. So as Kieran adds here, killing two birds with one stone. So Atari went back. And, uh, they designed, uh, and, the of, and they designed, and the designer, and the result uh, their design was the Atari XE game system. So it was a, basically a console version of the Atari XE home computer. And it had ports uh, to connect a tape player, disk drive, printer, and of course a keyboard. And basically you could take this gaming console and turn it into a full-blown bu- full 8-bit computer. So unlike Atari's previous attempts to colonize the 8-bit line, which is basically taking the Atari 400-based computers and and creating the 5200 super system, the the Zegs actually use the exact same cartridges that the Atari 8-bit computers used previously. So we're going all the way back to 400, 800, uh, 800 800XL, and so forth. And... um, and thanks to the expansion ports, there was a wide uh, range of software available on diskette. Sorry, diskette. What am I talking about? Disk and uh, tape as well. So unlike the 5200 before it, the Zegs was released on both sides of the Atlantic. So it got a U.S. and a U.K. release. And in the U.K., it was mainly sold through. It was mainly uh, sold through big catalog stores. And um, there was the uh, deluxe package. It was a deluxe package promoted as an all-in-one solution for parents. It was a serious computer for learning as well as a red-hot arcade machine. Do we wish? Okay, (laughs) (laughs) This strategy did see some limited success with uh, Atari UK's marketing manager, Daryl Still, commenting that the Zeg sold steadily through the catalogs and provided a nice profit for Atari. Wow, now, although it could use all existing software, the Atari uh, they actually the Atari Zegs got thirty two XE branded games that um, that that were that were uh, you know repackaged and uh, put onto cartridges. Some of these games were originally on disk and they were put onto cartridges, they were put into new kind of packaging, the blue boxes that we know. and also at the same time, Atari took a look at the other older 8-bit games that were on the shop shelves and they stuck a big yellow sticker on it that says also plays on the XE games system. So um, so I just wanted to make sure, just a one important thing to note is that not every XE game is just a direct copy of a game that originally was, let's say, on the uh, 400, 800... Uh, system. Some of them, some of the games for the XE system were, um, were recoded from the ground up. So oh. one of those games is um, Mario Brothers. Oh. So if you take a look at the older version of Mario Brothers that you would have found back in the day on the four, on the and 800, and you play the Zeg's version of Mario Brothers, you'll see there's a huge gif- difference in graphics and it's, a, and, it's, and it's quite a decent upgrade from yeah
3: that, that was that was the first XE game that i saw in the wild uh, as a kid back when mm-hmm. it was out and uh picked it up from a from a game store so they had like the super nintendo and i was kind of oohing and on over you know the super mario world but at the same time i'm like well look they even have mario for the atari computers and mm-hmm. you know i confirmed with them that it would work on my 1200 and they said it would so i i came home pretty happy with ha ha i have mario too i mean i knew it was super mario but uh yeah and and then, and you know when I plugged in it did, it did definitely look different from that giant fold-out poster I had from my Atari age magazine of I guess it was 5200 Mario Brothers, which looked basically the same as the the four hundred eight hundred version so
2: yep exactly so uh, so some of the games have been completely rewritten and enhanced for the uh, Atari XC game system, and when we go through the games we 'll point that out to uh, the listeners as uh, we do our um, reviews.
3: Okay, so the XE game system specs. Um, now, let's start with a name, and I'm going to have my guys here give me a hand. Um, I've always heard of it as the XEGS for the Atari XE video game system. Um, the video was silent, I assumed, uh, but is also sometimes known as the XEGM. So um, According to Bruce over at BNC Computer Visions, uh, he reports confusion. Terminally, terminology is often misused with the XE computer. The XE game machine is the computer included in the game system. The game system also includes a joystick, light like gun, flight simulator, and bug hunt. So there's that. And it actually came as different packages, which I'll get into in a
1: moment. Um, did you guys have anything to add for that?
2: Or Confusion? Yeah. yeah,
1: Because they were two different. And you'll talk about it's the, the one came with just the console and one came with the keyboard, right? Mm -hmm. That was the $199 one, and then they had the $99 one.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, so the one that I have is the uh, big, you know, big hulking blue box with the three layers of foam. (laughs) And it basically has the two uh, games, the flight sim, uh, bug hunt. It's got the console. It's got the uh, keyboard. It's got the joystick, the light gun, power supply, the works. So that's the one that I have. and that,
3: That's a good for under the tree at Christmas time? That'd be yes. The, yeah. It's a
1: bike. No, nope. it's an XE. <laughs> so if you uh, got keyboards and all that other stuff for the uh, original game machine, then would it automatically become? You have to name it something or could you stick with the old name? <laughs> mm.
2: <laughs> now, I have never seen, to tell you the truth, <clears throat> I've never seen actually the XE GM, which is the model which was just sold with the console, keyboard, and joystick only. Whenever I've looked up, you know, looking on eBay or looking on places to, to, to purchase it, I've never seen this uh, cost-reduced version in the way that it, does, it didn't include the light gun and, and the extra games and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, I, but, I, to, to me it was a surprise that there was such a thing because I don't remember advertised as that. I remember advertised as light gun and keyboard and flight sim and all that.
1: Yes. Well, actually, when I was looking up for prices, because you had some areas where you didn't have the prices in it, I actually looked through a bunch of old um, catalogs, Christmas catalogs, and magazines, oh, sweet. And, and they had them in there. And in fact, there was uh, also a European magazine that had it as well. But you know, it was most people were selling the whole thing. I think they wanted to sell the you know, higher uh, ticket item and just kind of say, oh, yeah, we got this other thing down here. It's $99. <laughs> you want the more expensive. So. Mm-hmm. Okay,
3: great. All right, uh, so, so mo- moving on. Okay, um, yep. So as mentioned before, uh, this was released in 1987. Um, it was discontinued, discontinued along with the, uh, the other XEs um, in 1992, and that's when Atari focused on their popular and uh, well-loved Atari Jaguar <laughs> home uh. game console.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: they were driving quickly into the <laughs> JTS reverse m-
2: merger at the end. Uh- <laughs> oh, yes, and we will leave those comments to Mr. Yeah. Shinto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Tune for 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 the next Atari tune into Shinto's show. Yeah. So um So let's see. Uh so it was released in fall of eighty seven and as we mentioned um there was the, the full package and you got um, built into the operating system were the missile command game um and the revision C version of Atari Basic. Detachable keyboard, uh, I guess one joystick, a light gun, and cartridge games flight simulator, and bug hunt. And it was initially priced, it looks like, between 150 and $199 US dollars. Yep. And then the basic version, which we aren't totally sure about, um, had only the console itself, uh, presumably in a joystick. Yeah, in a joystick. Um, and that was around $99 US
1: Um. How would you like so to boot up with BASIC without a keyboard, though?
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, yeah, by default, that's the thing. If you detach the keyboard, we'll get into that in a sec. Yeah. Um, so the available peripherals for the XE itself uh, included the keyboard. I have no idea how much that costs separately. The light gun. I have no idea how much that costs separately, but um, I, I've heard that people use it with the uh, 7800 and some of the light gun games on that system. Um, the CX40-style joysticks, the old you know 2600 big red button version, um, although in a different color style for the XE. Oh.
2: Okay, just before oh Bill, just before we go go further, I just want to get consensus with uh, you and Michael. What color is this system? Oh God! Well, so not the buttons. I know the pastel buttons, but what is this color? Is it's 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 a gray. It is gray.
1: Because I had an XE and it was the, and it was, I had an XE brand new and it was a gray color. It's not that orangey color that you keep seeing because what's happening is people are taking pictures of these things and they're not adjusting the color correctly or they're, they're actually, you know, they actually have the oranging happening to them. But mine was gray.
2: Okay. So the consensus is the color of this system is gray. It is gray. Okay. Unless they had a,
1: Unless somebody else had it, like they changed the color, but it seems to me like they stuck with the same color scheme as the XE systems.
2: Okay. It's an interesting gray. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right, so it's also compatible with
3: um, most Atari 8-bit peripherals, including uh, things that connect to the SIO port, that's the serial I.O., and that's where you connect most floppy disks, printers, and modems. Um, Controller ports for joysticks and other kind of controllers like paddles, drawing tablets, uh, robotic Kits, science kits. Cool. Um, and then uh, there are actually some kind of peripheral-like things that were available on cartridge for the Atari 8-bit, like uh, real-time clock and so forth. Um, so it's basically a 65XE, which was the 1985 system, um, but with a detachable keyboard, and without the parallel bus interface, the expansion slot in the back, or the um, enhanced cartridge interface port that the XEs had, uh, but along with built-in missile command. Um, it had a lot of the same custom graphics and sound chips as the 5200 Super System, as I mentioned before. Um, physically, it was about uh, 12 and 3 quarters inches by 8 inches by 2 and a quarter inches, which <laughs> for our European friends, or basically anyone else except for the US, <laughs> uh, three, uh, 325 millimeters by 205 millimeters by 60 millimeters. And it weighed about uh, 2 and a quarter pounds, or about 1 kilo.
2: All hail the imperial system.
3: (laughs) Uh, The keyboard was uh, thirteen and three quarters by six and a quarter by one and three quarters, so three hundred fifty millimeters by one hundred sixty-two millimeters by forty-five millimeters, and it weighed almost the same. Actually, it looks like it weighed a little bit more. It weighed two point three pounds or one point oh four kilograms. Bill, Um,
2: before you go further, I just want to I just want to tell the to tell the podcast listeners where else. Are you going to get this information at this, at this in-depth? Okay.
1: On the, Maybe the back of the box. Okay.
2: Not yeah. only did, are we telling you about the computer itself, we're actually telling you how big it is so you can actually plan your home space right now and so that when you go out and get this awesome system, you already know the dimensions. You already can figure out where you're going to put it in your home. Well,
3: I have a question. I mean, I guess it would sit on top of your 5200, right? The 5200 would act as the table.
1: Well, is, pretty is much, yeah. You can have it. a okay. lot of systems on the on the 52, Okay, right? okay. Yeah.
3: All right, so... it was a barbecue uh, on that thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so oh. the, the XEGS, along with the XEs, were kind of a medium grayish color. Um, the XEGS had kind of pastel-colored power button and console keys. Um, so the console itself had just the power button. Oh, I'm sorry, no, I had the power button and the, the console keys, and those are the start, select, and option keys. Um, and the reset key, am I getting this right? Yep, yep, yep. you got it. Okay. There's five keys. Five keys, all right. And the cartridge port on top. Yep. Um, on the right side, it had two controller ports for your joysticks or paddles or what have you. And on the left, it had the keyboard uh, connector port. And in the back, you had audio out and video out separately, uh, which is different than any of the other Atari 8-bit computers. Uh, so it was more like your Nintendo NES or um, kind of some more of the earlier composite systems as well as a RF uh, TV channel switch and the RF TV out, and then your uh, SIO um, serial port and uh, power in. Uh, the keyboard is a 57-key QWERTY, and it also includes the help button uh, that was kind of like a console-ish key uh, added in the uh, XL series. And it actually has the uh, Ataski, which is Atari's version of ASCII uh, text standard. Um, the graphic characters on the face keys—sorry, uh, on the key faces. So basically, when you hit, uh, for example, Control comma, you get a little picture of a heart. Or if you hit Control T, you get a little picture of a ball. Um, so it showed you what those were right on the keyboard itself. Uh, it, the keyboard had hooks on the back to connect it to, co- to the console to form a single unit. Um, so the man- learning about the manuals was interesting because along with a 26-page manual with, um, which actually included technical spec- specifications and pinouts and had an index, uh, it also included a 99-page spiral-bound book um, with the keyboard that included how to set it up and use it, uh, talked about the graphic characters as well as the international characters in the character set, how to edit text, um, it had a basic programming tutorial, sample basic programs, um, a list of basic uh, reserved keywords to look up, um, the ASCII character set listed out, along with the uh, numeric codes for those, um, and a list of common operating system, basic, and DOS error code, uh, error code meetings, and then, of course, an index at the end. So it was, uh, it was pretty full-fledged.
2: Yeah, I just want to add there, Bill, mm-hmm. I'm actually, because I do own, uh, I actually own the complete Zegs uh, system and I'll, as long as a second one is a backup, because we always need a backup of a backup of a backup. And I, can't, I have right in front of me the actual literature that came with the system. And I'm looking at the keyboard, you know, the keyboard manual. Uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's like 90, what is it? 99 pages. Like, that's what I love about Atari. They were really consumer based and, and they just, they were, they, they set up their system so that a person with probably no experience could sort of ease into it. Yeah, And to give you an example of that, let me just read this um, insert that came with the system. It's called the Atari XE Game System Information Sheet. I just want you to listen to this. I find, I find this interesting, but just indulge me for a moment. <laughs> Your Atari XE game System system should be set up in a roomy workspace <laughs> that's both healthy for the system and enjoyable for you. Before unpacking your system, choose a location for it that has a sturdy level surface, close to an electrical outlet. There should, yeah, go ahead, laugh, because this is awesome. Uh, There should be plenty of room for airflow around the XC components and your video display, either a color TV or color monitor. Don't set up the system where it might be exposed to dust, grease, Extreme temperatures, direct sunlight, or high humidity. So I what, so I don't know.
1: Okay. And- well, you think you think about it. Like a lot of people were just getting into computers back then, and these were magical boxes. So they didn't yeah. know what to do with all. I mean, we laugh about it now, but back then it's like, you know, Yeah. people would do anything. Stick them under the window, you know, smoke over them. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't really know what to do. You know, they just – it was – so you had to go through all this stuff. Nowadays, yeah. we just kind of go – yeah, it's common sense. Yeah. But. And it just put, them, put them on a beach? No, wait,
3: that yeah. was Atari. Yeah.
2: Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the Atari 5200. It actually was able to plug into sand and project, <laughs> and project the game image into the uh, atmosphere. Yeah. I'm still looking for that version to buy it, but it hasn't shown up on eBay. You could probably mount a projector inside. The 50- oh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and just to finish off, it says, an environment that works well for a TV or stereo system... Should suit your XE game system just fine yeah thank you atari yeah. i got you gotta love Atari because they really um try to uh, they really try to focus on um, the consumer aspect yeah. of their uh system, so i gotta hand it to them i'm glad I read that because i i don't know I, I think I've been using my system all wrong
1: where do you have like <laughs> buried under a pile of pillows or? Uh, well
2: usually, <laughs> I guess usually I have a uh, played box uh, yeah well. you, you, a lot of
1: kids, a lot of kids they had to set up the computers in the closet,
3: so <laughs> I mean that was the space they had, all right, yeah, all right.
0: This is the Nintendo video game system. It plays only cartridge games. This is the new Atari XE system. It plays cartridge and disc-based games. Disc drives sold separately, and only Atari
2: comes with a real joystick. Both have guns, but only Atari comes with the target game, Bug Hunt.
0: Nintendo has a toy robot, but only Atari gives you a keyboard for playing advanced computer games. It even comes with the amazing Flight Simulator 2 cartridge. The new Atari XE video game system. Unbeatable.
3: So moving on to the the gory technical specifications. So the CPU is a MOS six five zero two C, also known as Sally, running at a whopping one point seven nine megahertz. But remember, this is nineteen eighty seven. Yep. Uh, so the same speed as all the other Atari eight bit computers, basically. Uh, hey, well, at least don't the knock N- it. NTCM ones.
2: Don't knock it. The Commodore sixty four was one meg, I think.
3: Yep. Yep. It was, one yeah. megahertz.
2: Yep. One megahertz. So we got seven, We got 0.79 <laughs> on top of that.
3: Uh, so I have a note in here, not to be confused with the 65CO2. Um, the 6502C adds a halt signal and a second re- uh, read-write uh, on two additional pins. Oh. Um, so it's got 62 kilobytes of RAM, so that's uh, 64K of address space, and then 2K of that address space is where the hardware itself is mapped, so your uh, Antic and chips, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, so the XEGS has a whopping 32 kilobyte. Uh, known as Revision Four XEGS OS ROM. So some interesting features of the uh, the Atari 8-bit OS. So this is going all the way back to 1979 on the 400, and 800. This is the stuff I love. It's got a uh, centralized I/O system, uh, which is basically what today we'd call a driver-based uh, devices. So well-written software doesn't really need to care about the device specifics. So um, they open a D colon device to talk to the disk. Uh, they can open the E colon device to talk to the the screen, the editor. Um, you can talk to your printer with a P colon. In um, some of these can be uh, enumerated. So for example, if you have multiple disk drives, you have D1, D2, and so forth. Uh, you can have multiple printers. Um, modems and uh, other, other RS-232 devices are usually uh, the R device, R colon device. And you basically just read, read uh, open and read and write to them. And what's cool is, in most cases, uh, the I.O. is handled identically. So if you're in BASIC and you use the, the list statement, you can say list and then, in quotes, P colon, and the listing of your program dumps out on the printer. Mm-hmm. Or you can say list and then, quote, C colon, and then hit record on your tape drive, and it'll start dumping the the Atasky listing uh, onto a file on your tape. You know, same thing with the disk. Same thing with whatever new device you invent. So if you've got a robot hand that does sign language, you know... <laughs> That's connected to the Atari. As long as the device driver works, uh, it'll it'll do it. Um, the operating system is vector based, so in other words, it has a, a table of um, pointers that uh, are used to access different routines within the operating system. So um, if you change something in the operating system, or if you get a new version of the, of the Atari OS, which has you know obviously come out a couple times um, over the years, as long as the software is looking up where to jump to with uh, via these vectors via this lookup table, um, software doesn't need to care where things moved, uh, you know, where Atari had to f- fit things in their, in their chips. Um, it would just, just work as usual. Um, it's kind of a real-time OS in a sense. Uh, it has um, multiple timers and, and interrupts. The operating system included some um, floating-point math routines. Not the best ones in the world, but uh, they're there for you. The operating system's got some routines for setting up standard graphics modes uh, with and without a little text window at the bottom, as well as uh, plotting dots and lines on the screen. Um, the text editing uh, portion of the operating system uh, supports up to three physical lines, which is about 120 characters uh, per. What's known as a logical line, um, and you can uh, just using control keys and and keys on the keyboard uh, do cursor movement, uh, insert and delete both characters and lines, uh, clear the screen, and you're actually able to type almost. You type 254 out of the 250. I'm sorry, 255 out of 256 characters. Uh, that are in Itaski, uh <clears throat> using escape sequences and uh, the inverse video mode and the control character graphics. Why can't I have that last character? Why
0: yeah, because I
3: know it's the return <laughs> key. <laughs> oh! Well, the All return right. key
2: so, is a character. I, take, I guess it takes a space. So close, Atari. So close. Yeah. Um, you know what? So the, I, oh, sorry, Bill. I think what you just said there, Michael, that's mm-hmm. a perfect sl- slogan for Atari. So close. <laughs> so, so close. <laughs> Sorry about that, Bill.
3: That's fine. That's fine. So, um, so the built-in software, along with the operating system itself, you've got um, the game Missile Command, uh, which was uh, the 1981 Atari 400-800 port of the 1980 ar- uh, Atari arcade game. Um, Atari BASIC. Um, so the original version of that was the 1979 cartridge version that came for the 400, and 800, and 1200 XL, and has been built in since the uh, 600, and 800, 800 XL era. And this is not a Microsoft dialect uh, of BASIC. Um, it's a little bit slow, but um, it includes graphics and sound capabilities, and it all fit within uh, eight kilobytes. So uh, it's actually, you know, pretty decent BASIC. There, there are better kind of revisions of it since then. Other kind of forks or, or compatible versions of basic, like Turbo Basic, that you can uh, pick up and, and run off a disc. Um, and there's also a, a self-test routine that uh, originally came out in 1982 on the 1200XL uh, to test the sound chip, graphics chip, and uh, ROM and RAM chips as well as a keyboard. Basically, throws a picture of the keyboard up and lights things up and beeps every time you hit a key. So you basically go through all, all keys on the keyboard to make sure they all still work.
2: Oh, that's good. I'm going to try that.
3: Um, so with this weird combination of built in software you know more than you'd have on any of the other XEs or the the XLs uh, and this keyboard that you can connect and attach I, I did some research and tried to figure out how do you boot up all these different combinations so bear with me here with a keyboard it acts like any other XL and XE system so it either boots up with basic or if you have a cartridge in boots into cartridge To disable BASIC, which, if you have nothing else hooked up, will get you into the self-test mode, hold down the Option key while you turn it on. Um, To boot off a floppy, plug in a floppy drive, Uh, to boot off a a cassette, hold the Start key while you turn it on. And if you really want to get into Missile Command, even though you have the keyboard attached, hold down Select while you turn it on. Now, without a keyboard, when you turn it on without a cartridge, it boots in Missile Command. If you hold Select, it disables Missile Command and boots off of the floppy drive, if you have it, or goes into the self-test mode. And if you hold Select and Start, it'll disable Missile Command and boot off of cassette. Hmm. And if you hold Option, it'll enable Basic, which won't be super useful unless you happen to have a bootable disk that'll boot into some Basic game that doesn't need a keyboard. But there you have it.
2: <laughs> wow, that, that's a lot of options.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, consult the manual. Um, yeah, so I seriously. have a question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you hot swap? Can you can you disconnect and reconnect the keyboard with the machine on? or Are you going to bust it that way?
2: Bust it? To... I, Is it
1: I, would, I would fry it. <laughs> mm, that's a good question. I would say no, but I don't know if it would actually work.
2: You know what? I'm going to okay. have to try that uh, now. I think I've had it on where I've uh, pulled out the keyboard and put it back in, and, and I don't think. I'm just trying to remember. I don't think it was there was any issue, but you know what? Just for the heck of it, I'll make sure that I try that out before the next show. Cool. And, okay. And, uh, and we'll uh, report my findings to the yeah. three listeners <laughs> of the podcast. Yeah.
3: Like I said, I, I don't own one of these. I, I don't think I'll ever. I ever will. I'm not. I'm not sure because you know I've got a couple of XLS and they do everything that this thing does. I have the Nintendo, so I have the popular system of the day. So. I even have a 7,800, 7, so I have the unpopular system of the day. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, one would think um, they wouldn't do that sort of thing, but you know, <clears throat> when Tramiel came in, he kind of pretty much fired everybody and all the brains behind Atari. Um, so who knows? Maybe the engineers just kind of hurried it along, but I would think that they were designing for children to play games and mm-hmm. you know, use that um, they were trying to make it kid-proof as much as possible. Yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. All right, so let's uh, move on. We've uh, done the CPU and the RAM and the ROM. Let's get on to the graphics chip. So it's got two graphics chips, uh, custom chips that uh, Atari made for the 400 and 800 series uh, back in 1979. Um, The first one is called Antic, also known as the the Alphanumeric Television Interface Controller. Um, It generates the playfield graphics, which would be your... Uh, lines and dots that you plot around the screen, your characters and and other tile shapes that you have. Um, And it's delivered as kind of a data stream to the GTIA chip. It's actually its own uh, microprocessor. So it has its own simple instruction set um, to run little programs. And those programs are what are called the display lists. So when you hear, um, for example, Rob on the Player Missiles podcast talking about display lists, and he's investigating what the display list looks like in a game, he's basically seeing what's in memory that is instructing the Antic... um, as to what to put on the screen and how and where, so he's he's reading that program basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the aforementioned GTIA chip is the Graphic Television Interface Adapter. Uh, I think sometimes known as George's, but I believe the official name is Graphic. But you know, send your complaints to the some Commodore podcast, please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the the next generation of the Atari 2600's uh, TIA uh, display driver chip. Um, So it it interprets the playfield graphics coming from Antic and it applies color to it based on some color registers, which I'll get into in a bit. Um, And it does the drawing, positioning, coloring, as well as merging when applicable of what are called player missile graphics, uh, which other systems call them hardware sprites. It also happens to read the console keys, the start, select, and option, um, as well as the joystick fire buttons and it is what delivers the console sounds, quote-unquote. So the key, kick, uh, key click and the uh, bell and buzzer sound that you get from the operating system. Um, in the original 400 and that was actually uh, generated through a separate speaker built into the keyboard, um, starting with the XL series that basically gets merged in with the, the sound chip. Hey, what a segue. The sound chip, Pokey, uh, which is the POT keyboard integrated circuit chip, it's the official name, apparently. Um, I always called it Pots and Keys. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it's meant for reading your analog inputs, so that would be your potentiometers, potential, also known as paddles, if you're playing something like Pong or Super Breakout. Um, but there are also other analog inputs that have used it, for example, the touchpad and the light pen. It also handles uh, reading the keyboard, uh, doing the serial I.O. through the S.I.O. port, Um, It handles some timers and interrupts, and it does your pseudo-random number generation. Um, The Pokéchip is also used in some Atari arcade systems, for example, Tempest and Millipede. And it can actually be combined. You can mix a couple of pokies together. Uh, I remember way back in the 90s hearing about one called Gumby um, (laughs) to do 8-channel stereo sound. So, you know, solder a couple pokies on top of each other, stick some wires between here and there, Give yourself another little audio jack in the back and boom, you've got stereo. Is this that simple, Bill? Just that simple. Actually now, now you can buy a, a board from uh, Lotharic, uh in, where is uh in Poland. Yeah, Poland, yeah. And and plug a couple pokies into it and plug it into your Atari and I think it just works. So it's even easier now if you've wow. got some money to spend.
1: Of course. So, uh, where are you getting your Pokies from? Are you stealing them from? Uh...
3: <laughs> yeah, from your moving on from your so some Atari seventy eight hundred games. So the seventy eight hundred is is kind of like it's backwards compatible with the twenty six hundred. And one of the things they did when they made the, the seventy eight hundred is they didn't give it its own audio chip. It basically has the same relatively crappy audio capabilities of the twenty six hundred via the the TIA chip. So wah, it can't wah. really it can't really play very good music yeah. because it has what Ferg on the 2600 Game by Game podcast calls bum notes. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're a musician and you listen to the Indiana Jones theme or the E.T. theme, you go, ah, go, oh, why does it sound that way? Um, so But some of the games, uh, the cartridges themselves, and it looks like there were two of them, Ball Blazer and Commander for the 70, I'm sorry, Commando for the 7800, uh, included built-in pokies. Yep. Uh, and that's where people are <laughs> swiping them from to, re-
2: to repair their arcade systems. Wow. <sighs> um, well, I have a ball blazer. I bought card only. I saw it. It was quite just lying there at a at one of these stores, uh, retro um, uh, stores. It was for 5 bucks, so I just picked it, it up.
3: Did, it didn't have like a gouge through it, and it doesn't work, right? Like it was it was. –
2: I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what people
1: are here are doing is they're taking the chips out, putting them back together, and selling them. And, and that's such a shame because ball blazer is a great game. Yeah, and it's got great music. We used to play – that was cool. one of our uh, two-player, you know – have some beers and try and beat each other at uh, Ballblazer and uh, and uh, Archon. Those are the two <laughs> that. So.
3: Ballblazer, I don't drink, but Ballblazer and beer I can see. Oh, Archon yeah. and beer, not so much, but okay. Well, your <laughs> skill set
1: starts to <laughs> diminish the more beers
3: you have. And that's where it got
1: fun.
2: <laughs> well, for some right. people, uh, they may have gotten better. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, there's, a, there's that.
1: It's a it's a it's a bell curve. Uh, okay. <laughs>
3: All right, so talking about a couple other chips, um, this is getting a little bit outside of my expertise, but it's got a a PIA chip, a parallel interface adapter. They use the MOS 6502. uh, I'm sorry, 6520. Of course I was going to say it wrong, um, which is found in numerous other devices. Uh, And it handles, on the Atari, the digital I.O. coming in through the the controller ports. So um, the joysticks, which are uh, basically eight-way digital, left, right, up, down, or combinations for diagonal um, as well as the fire buttons, uh, the keyboard controller, and, and so forth. And then it has a chip called the Freddy, which uh, I believe is another Atari custom chip, and it was basically to replace some serv- uh, several chips that were part of the XL line, kind of consolidate, uh, and it handles some memory decoding and some timers.
2: Uh, Bill, was uh, the Freddy chip, was that in the, um, was that in that, uh, was it, what was it, the Atari, um, was it the 1400 XL?
3: Oh, I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. I would think not, because the 1400 didn't come out, but the 600, XL did after that. But I could be wrong.
1: Okay. Well, it sounds to me like a cost-cutting thing. I mean, you know, again, Termel was real big on like, cutting <laughs> cut and corners. And so, and I wonder, I mean, it probably didn't suffer in any way, I hope. I mean, that's, that just makes sense to start cutting down on, on, uh, on parts. Yeah.
2: <clears throat> yeah. Well, thanks <clears throat> to him and his part-cutting... Cu- I mean we were able to get Commodore sixty fours for one ninety nine that's true <laughs> and don't forget while we're on the tremeil or treme bandwagon
1: <laughs> um, um
2: thanks to him Atari still existed yes true. yes yes true. True. post that's uh true. you know <laughs> post um, um nineteen eighty three to 84. that's right somebody
3: somebody made epics' handy the links, so there's and, that yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot and to and think.
2: remember it's the power without the price that's right all right as i read my old brochure
3: (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of power this is this is one of the places where the atari 8-bit shined at least it shined really well until the 16-bit era in my opinion i mean i'm sorry commodore 64 people and obviously apple two people are are you know they've got their four colors or 16 colors
0: Buying a Commodore 64 computer would make you smart. But buying a 65XE from Atari would be smarter. Both have the same amount of memory, both have typewriter-style keyboards, but the XE has better graphics, better sound, more colors, and it's faster with thousands of software programs, including the best games. And for under $100, it blows the Commodore away. The XE computers from Atari, starting at under $100.
3: The Atari used um, what they called indirection. So, for example, it had 128 colors. So it was 16 different hues, and each one can be eight different shades. So from very dark close to black to very bright close to white. And it was, you know, yellows and oranges and reds and pinks and blues and purples and greens and so forth across that 16-color spectrum. And then each one can be a different brightness. Um, You could generally have uh, objects on the screen that were nine of those particular colors. It was actually on a per scan line basis, but I'm, now I'm getting a little bit too complicated. Go listen to Rob's player missile podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there was one mode actually that did allow 16 shades. So it was actually possible to get 16 colors in that mode. Uh, I'm sorry, 256 colors in that mode. Um, and, and there's a number of demos that, that show that kind of really high color uh, feature, which is cool.
1: Oh yeah. That rainbow um, is beautiful.
3: Yes. Um, you can point the video chips to basically anywhere in memory uh, in your RAM or ROM or even the cartridge uh, to tell it what to display on the screen as well as uh, where the display list is. Um, it has redefinable character sets, also known as fonts these days, uh, which are useful, useful for tile graphics for games like, say, um, uh, uh, Chris Crawford's oh. Thank you. <laughs> Eastern Front um, is, is one of the early examples of, of that being used well. Um, and then as mentioned, uh, the graphics modes themselves are defined, uh, using display lists. So you have various text and bitmap modes. On, on the same screen. So if you've ever played Star Raiders, which if you haven't, uh, pause this podcast now and go play Star Raiders, please. Read the manual. You need to read the manual. Um, you'll notice that the, the main portion of the screen when you're flying around is little dots of stars and explosions and so forth. Um, and if you observe closely, you'll notice that the bad guys are, are the sprites, the player missiles flying around, and your, your photon torpedoes shooting around are also hardware sprites. Um, every once in a while, like if you if you get damage or if you tell the computer to do something, like enable or disable shields or, um, you know, turn on the tactical tactical computer, there'll be a little line of text up at the top that's kind of in a... It's obviously in a different resolution of the stars. It's it's higher resolution than the little square stars. And it's text. It's not little dots. Um, Basically, they just change the display list for a couple seconds to show that message, and then they change it back. So if you notice really closely, the stars disappear for those couple of scan lines as they pass, I guess you'd say, behind... That little text pop up. But of course, since it's outer space and it's all black, you don't even, and everything's moving fast and you're trying to shoot bad guys, you don't really pay attention to that. But that's, that's one really easy example of, of the display list actually changing as you're playing the game. Um, so we'll go on to the, uh, the actual graphics and text modes that it has. So the main text mode, like when you boot it up into BASIC, um, is the 40 by 24 uh, mon- monochromatic character uh, screen. There's, uh, each character is 8x8 eight by eight, eight by eight pixels, and you have 128 shapes to choose from, plus an inverse video, versions of the same, so that gives you 256 different characters that appear on the screen. So the main text mode, like you'd get um, if you booted into BASIC, is uh, 40 columns and 24 rows, so 40x24, uh, and it has 8x8 eight eight monochromatic characters. There are 128 different shapes you can choose from you know, A through Z and 0 through 9 and so forth, Uh, plus inverse video graphics of each. So the pixels are swapped. uh, Black is white, white is black, or what have you. Uh, Giving you a total of 256 characters you can render on the screen. Um, So there are other graphics, uh, text modes. There's um, the ones that I call big text modes. So you get uh, either 20 by 24, so they're double width, or 20 by 12, they're basically quadruple in size, those are also 8x8 eight eight monogra- uh, monochromatic characters. Uh, you only get to use 64 shapes, uh, but they're available in four foreground colors. Um, and then there's a multicolor text mode. Uh, there's a 40x24 as well as a 40x12, so like really tall and, and narrow. Um, those are eight pixels across, I'm sorry, four pixels across and eight pixels tall, um, but they're actually four colors. So each, each character can have multiple colors within it. Um, and in this case, you also get 128 shapes. Uh, but when you use inverse mode, you end up with a fifth character. So color number four becomes whatever you have color number five pointing to. Um, and that's, that's really useful for uh, tile-based games where you want to have you know, lots of detail within each shape. So like an RPG game or something like that. <clears throat> um, so then there's bitmap graphic modes. Uh, there's the 320 by 192 uh, monochromatic high resolution, quote unquote. Uh, basically, the pixels look the same as what you're seeing uh, within the characters in the forty-column text mode. And then there's uh, 160 by 192 and 160 by 96, all the way down to whopping gigantic 40 by 24 huge blocks. And uh, these these different modes can be in either mono or four color. So, um, and then finally, there's there's some uh, other kind of weird, weirdly wide pixel modes, um, and if you look into it, you'll, you'll discover these are called the GTIA modes, named after the graphics chip. Um, they're 80 pixels across by 192 pixels down. So, imagine typing an underscore in an old 80-column DOS prompt. That's what the pixel looks like. It's really, really bizarrely shaped, bizarrely wide. Um, but in these different modes, there's three of them. Uh, one of them gets you 16 shades of one particular hue. One of them gives you 16 hues of one particular shade and then one of them lets you use the palette and you can have nine distinct colors out of the 128 color palette. These sound really weird, um, but if you boot up, for example, Ballblazer and you look at that beautiful Lucasfilm intro screen or if you've seen um, uh, Rescue and Fractalis's mothership, the really chrome-looking thing with your spaceship flying out of it, uh-huh. mm-hmm. that's powered by these modes. That's where you get lots and lots and lots of really colorful detail. And if you draw things properly, it looks really nice. Well, I remember um, a lot of
1: demos had this, didn't they?
3: Yeah, a lot these. of demos uh, mix yeah. and match these modes. I mean, this yeah. is, again, where you get the 256 shades. Um, there's actually uh, one I remember from the early 90s called Color View, which was it would, it would swap between... Um, three of the sixteen shade modes. One of them would be all red. One of them would be all green. And one of them would be all blue. And you know, if you let your eyes get used to it, after the persistence of vision of your in, of your eyeballs, y- you'll be able to d- to detect four thousand and ninety six colors. Wow! Really low resolution, at least horizontally. But it's still, I mean, that was that was how we looked at GIFs back, was, yeah. <laughs> back on the Atari. <laughs> um. So uh, the Atari provides uh, hardware-supported fine scrolling, which is awesome in games, obviously. But you know, it's also been used in things like um, terminal emulators. So when, when your screen is scrolling by, instead of the entire screen going mm-hmm. one line at a time, you can actually have it smoothly go one pixel at a time up the screen. It's, it's, and it's really cheap and easy to do in the hardware. Um, now, I keep mentioning these resolutions like th- 320 by 192, that's the normal mode you can actually switch into an overscan mode you just set a bit somewhere as well as an underscan mode where you get really thick borders so you can have basically up to 352 pixels across on some tvs you won't be able to see them all <laughs> <laughs> obviously and most emulators kind of assume that you probably don't want to see what's on the on the far far edges because sometimes it's garbage or you know will give away too much of your game or whatever but um, as mentioned, it has hardware sprites, uh, known as player missile graphics on the Atari, and this harkens back to the uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred, which was it was basically built. The Twenty Six Hundred was built to play Tank and uh, Pong, I guess. So you'd need a player like your tank, and a missile like the tank's missile. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so that's where they got the naming convention from. Uh, they're all monochromatic, um, but if you overlap them, you have the option to produce a, a third color. So, for example, if you, uh, if you, if you want to have, like, a little Mario sprite or something, you can have three colors plus transparency uh, just by using two of the sprites. Um, single or double scanline resolution. So they, they basically look like the 160 by 192 mode, the high resolution, or the 160 by 96, kind of the more square dots. Uh, and, you know, depending on your need. They can also be um, double or quad width. So if you've ever played any 2,600 games where you see a really, really wide-looking sprite, um, that's the same, same feature they're using. They basically say, stretch him out. Um, Popeye video game does this. When he punches, they completely change the sprite and have a, a wider version of Popeye. <laughs> so he's, he's bigger, even though he's still eight pixels across. They're just wider <laughs> pixels. So he looks kind of weird for just a split second as he's punching. Um, so yeah, they're 8 pixels wide, but they're as tall as the screen. And, and the way I've uh, tried to explain this to people is say you have a, a strip of, of clear cellophane and you can draw you know, eight dots across on, on them, but anywhere up and down the screen. And then you can slide that back and forth in front of, say, a piece of paper. That's your play field. That's, that's how these sprites work. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I will, I will get in a moment into how you can take advantage of this feature to, to have even more sprites. Um, the, the missiles that go along with the players, those are two pixels wide, and they're also as tall as the screen, and they typically share their um, their respective player's color. So, for example, if you're talking about a tank game, blue tank has blue missiles, and red tank has red missiles. Um, but you can so-called merge them into a fifth player. All that really does is make them share yet another color, that kind of ninth color in the palette. Um, so you can have, um, for example, Pac-Man can be yellow, and the four ghosts can be the four ghost colors in, in a Pac-Man game. Um, you know, but where technically, say Pac-Man is actually four missiles that all move together, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the hardware itself, the, the the graphics chip, can do your hardware collision detection. So you can tell when pixels are touching each other. You can tell when um, one sprite is touching another sprite, or when one missile is touching another sprite, or um, when a uh, sprite is touching a background color, a particular background color. Um, so your game doesn't have to pay attention really to where things are. They can just like move stuff around, and then all of a sudden, when it sees this bit, it says, "Oh, they hit the wall." You know, like in Berserk, for example. It doesn't have to know where the walls are. It draws the walls once in the game, but the minute your sprite touches that color, bzz, right?
1: Um, <laughs> I think the TI ninety nine doesn't have that built in, and I remember reading that, thinking, "Oh, well, we're so lucky that the Atari had that built in because then you got <laughs> to do that extra coding."
3: Yep, yep, yep. <clears throat> a lot of times you don't want the the pixel perfect collision detection, but right, um, right. When you but when you do, when you want your guy to land exactly on a on a cliff or fall yeah. if he doesn't, you know that's that's when that's useful. Um, and then there's priority, so you can have sprites uh, go above or below each other. Imagine they're on layers, or they can actually go behind certain playfield colors. So You can have like um, I remember um, a, a motorbike game in one of the type in catalogs, and they they had it set up where the sprite would go behind a certain color, so they'd have these. Um, little tubes or whatever that your your motorcycle would drive through, and it literally looked like it was going through the hole and would disappear behind the wall for a second and come out the other side they didn 't have to change how they were drawing the motorcycle they didn 't have to start doing weird pixel things they just told the they told the the Gta chip you know draw it in this order so that if you know if this if the sprite and this color are in the same place, draw the color instead of the sprite on top hmm. so lots of lots of cool stuff you get for free from the from the hardware pumping at your you know almost two megahertz. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, going back to the display list, there's something called the display list interrupt. And um, relatively recently, I've also heard this called a horizontal blank interrupt. And um, it's basically per instruction of, you know, I want this graphics mode to be on this line and this other graphics mode to be on this other line. And I want to start reading from memory here while showing some text. And then I'm going to go back to graphics mode. So, So... for example, in that, that Star Raiders um, example where you have a little text thing pop up. Um, for each of those little commands in the display, display list, you can also tell Antic to interrupt the CPU and go tell the CPU to go start running some other code. So whatever whatever it's doing with your game code or word processor code or whatever, you can tell it, oh, jump over here for a sec, run a couple instructions, and then jump back out. And that's really useful for those rainbow effects where mm. every single scan line you have you know, you'll have your background is you know solid color number zero or whatever. But what is color number zero? Well, right now it's red. And then on the next line, it's pink. And on the next line, it's orange. But in terms of what's actually in memory, it's just all zeros. But it's telling it to change the colors. Um, you can also take those long strips of sprites, and you can snip, cut them in half, and then move them horizontally somewhere else. So you'll see a lot of games where there's way more than four or five sprites on the screen. But if you pay really close attention, you'll notice that they never kind of overlap vertically.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
3: um, I remember a, a space shooter game, Mirax Force. There'd be like eight alien ships up and down the screen, but they never actually like moved up or down. <laughs> yeah. But it still looked really nice because they were all offset from each other and some of them would be going back and forth and so forth.
1: Um, and that was always, yeah, that was always impressive because I'm sitting there going, wait, I know you can only have this many. Ca- How do they do that? And, you know, years yep. later, you learn the tricks of, of the trade, yep. but yep. so cool.
3: Um, and then you can also use it for, for non-graphic-related tasks. So, for example, I had something back in the day called the um, uh, the Parrot Speech... Uh, I'm sorry, um, Audio Digitizer. So it was something that plugged into the joystick ports, and it was read basically as a paddle. And you'd plug in an audio source, like a tape deck or a microphone, and you could digitize an audio sample in your tiny 48K or 64K RAM on wow. the Atari. <clears throat> Save it to disk, and then load it in your game and play it back. I made all sorts of weird music samples where I'd... I even recorded some weird like infomercials and we'll start mixing and matching parts of it together. I had like a little ditty of James Brown and I would edit it in such a way where I could get more of the song by repeating parts and so forth (laughs) or playing it at different speeds to get different pitches. I mean, it sounded horrible. Um,
1: But impressive for that day.
3: Yeah. But it was, it was, it was sampling at such a high rate. Yeah. Um, and it was doing it through the display list interrupt. It was doing it every couple of scan lines. It would go read the paddle and write a bite somewhere. Um, it's also used for um, uh, reading from the trackball, or or a mouse, basically upside down trackball, right? Um, or the Indy five hundred driving controllers that you have on the twenty six hundred. six the, the, They look like paddles, but they spin around all the way around and around and around and around. They're, uh-huh. they're um, what are called rotary controllers. Um, those are basically one dimensional mouse. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> they only go. They only go left and right, uh-huh. not up or down. Um, but but you know, it, you, you would just do this in the background. You'd have a little bit of code that would just read from that and. All of a sudden, you have a mouse moving around on the screen. Mm. And then finally, there's um, the vertical blank interrupt. And the, these blanks that we're talking about, you have to go back to think about old CRT TV. Um, it, it shoots um, electrons out to a phosphor on the, the edge of your TV set, and that makes the little dots light up. And it goes across, and then it goes down one line. And it goes across again, it goes down one line, and it goes all the way down to the bottom. And then the little magnets inside your TV have to make the electron beam go all the way back up to the top left. And it's th- at that point in time, it's called the vertical blank. Um, and the Atari gets an interrupt when that's happening. Once, once the Atari realizes that it's done drawing the screen, your, your program can get, can get interrupted. And the operating system actually does this. This is, this is how it does a lot of its operations. It kind of does it behind the scenes when, um, when this interrupt happens. Your program, whatever your program is, gets halted for a moment. Housekeeping stuff goes on. But you can actually write your own routines. So it's really useful for doing um, graphics and moving sprites around. You want to do it when the screen isn't getting updated. Otherwise, you might have half a sprite here and half a sprite there and have this kind of weird tearing effect that you sometimes see in in more modern computers that don't (laughs) support this. Um, It's used for tons of other stuff. For example, making the game code run at a regular rate and other things that you wanna, want would want to run at a really regular rate, for example, music. You know, you don't want your music to kind of slow down depending on how many bullets are on the screen. All right, so now I'm going to get a topic that I'm not actually too familiar with, but um, I'll just gloss over it real briefly. It's the, uh, the capabilities of the sound on the system. Um, it has four independent sound voices, or channels as they're called. It has a three and a half octave range. And voices and channels can actually be combined where you have... Um, either four 8-bit resolution channels or one 8-bit and one 16-bit channel or uh, two 16-bit channels. Um, so basically you can get a, a little bit higher resolution between pitches. Um, there are also uh, per-channel, obviously, pitch and volume controls, but also distortion controls. So if you, if you play games and you hear kind of a motor sound versus a honking sound versus a beeping sound, that's the, the different distortions being applied to the channel. Um, and then there's a direct volume control so that's useful for, for playing back uh, digital samples like I mentioned I had that that parrot device where you could record um, obviously it's helpful to, to play back your sound um, but also for, for speech since it's a for speech synthesis which I apparently can't do right now um, <laughs> for example there was uh, you know there, there were there were definitely kits and, and little things I saw in magazines for you know how to hook up some Texas instrument speech synthesizer to your joystick port and make it talk by pushing bits out to it. Um, but there was actually software that did it through the pokey chip. Uh, the one that I played with was called Sam also known as software automated mouth. Um, and that one was great because it actually had, um, not only could you program it specifically and say like, make this sound then make that sound, but it actually had, had a pretty good ability to convert English into its own internal sound. Like it's phonetics to say, like to read a speech or something. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: yeah, I remember that was uh, you could actually do inflections. You know, you raise your your um, the pitch. And... My name
3: is Sam. Yeah, yeah, I remember, uh, yeah that was that was really cool. And I can talk like a monster. I mean, it was it was it was incredible. For it was
1: great. And look at like for you coming know, off eight. <laughs> the, the Windows operating system had you know software that built into it, and it wasn't as good as that. I couldn't believe. Well, you it. know
3: what? No, you know what? The guys that made Sam, they, yeah. they, I believe they did the the Windows speech synthesis. They moved on and
1: and did that. Well, there was one that they had that would actually do that, and then they took it away in one of the layer operating systems. And I went, why'd you do that? It was so awesome. But probably people weren't really using it that much. But yeah. still, was really impressive. Yeah.
3: All right. So um, audio and video output, as mentioned, it has a um, RF, uh, radio frequency um, output, basically for using one of those TV game switches, also known as TV computer switch box, um, to let you connect to your cable or antenna input on your television set. Um. Pro tip for modern people, uh, if you're like me and have cut the cable cord and have no reason to plug RF into the back of your TV because you've got a Roku or something, um, you can get a real simple RF uh, coaxial plug that's just basically an adapter um, to, to convert uh, from the kind of RCA-style plug coming you know, out of the Atari into the cable coaxial plug that you plug into the back of the TV. You don't need the switch box. You just change your TV to... TV input in Channel 3, and, and it should work. Um, but also, as mentioned, it has uh, separate um, audio and video RCO phono jacks. Basically, it looks like something you plug into a VCR, or how you would plug a VCR into your old TV. Um, <clears throat> uh, many modern TVs um, that have component input actually let you use composite still. You basically just plug the video into the, the Y slash video input, and then you leave the red and the blue, uh, the PR and the PB Cables disconnected. IO capabilities. Uh, so it's got, like I mentioned, the SIO serial port, and it's uh, between 19.2 and 127 kilobits per second baud rates. Um, it has daisy chain capability, uh, and devices have their own uh, IDs, and they could actually deliver their drivers to the Atari through a boot process. So, for example, a disk drive, um, the Atari didn't have a built in disk operating system and the disk drives didn't usually have a disk operating system, you'd actually boot the disk operating system off the disk itself. So if you want to use a different DOS, or if you have, say, for example, a game that all it needs to do is, is load the game and it doesn't need any, any other features, um, they would just put a really simple DOS on the disk. Okay. Um, and there are various uh, other peripherals available, cassette tape drives, uh, obviously floppy disk drives, printers, modems, RS-232, serial and parallel printer port adapters, and so forth. Um, What's interesting is the SIO uh, port was designed by um, Joe DeCure, who actually went on and worked on USB. So the Atari lives oh, wow. on in your little keyboard dongle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so it has uh, some controller ports for joysticks and so forth. It has four digital I.O. lines per port, so you know for joystick up, down, left, right, and so forth. Um, it's also used for some of the digital input from things like mice and trackballs or those uh, rotary knobs, as well as two analog inputs for um, the paddles, or also touch pads and light pens and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, trigger or fire button, if you want to be violent about it. Um, <laughs> action button, I suppose, if you don't want to be. Um, and then also for talking to the outside world, there's, of course, the cartridge port, Um it's 8 kilobytes wide, uh, but via banking, um, some games on the XEGS are actually as big as 128 kilobytes. What would that be in uh, megs?
1: Uh, well, uh, one,
3: it'd be, it'd... A one meg game, if you want to call it meg, even though you're talking about megabits, which is what a lot of uh, companies did back then, like Sega would say. It's a one meg game, and all that meant it was a 128 kilobyte game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Ace of Aces, Flight Simulator 2, and Karotika are a couple of examples of that on the XE. Uh, but of course, the, joist, uh, the cartridge port's not just for games. Um, programming languages, scientific tools, word processors, modem terminals, and so forth were all available on cartridge, and you can run them on your XEGS. Also, some other interesting software um, or hardware, uh, real-time clocks like the r 8, uh, some DOSes like SpartaDOS X, I once upon a time had a local area network where I'd have a master Atari and a bunch of slave Ataris connected through uh, c- uh, cartridge ports. Uh, that was the multiplexer or MUX. Um, these days, storage interfaces like the MyID external drive or the MyIDE2 compact flash drive, uh, the Ultimate Cart, which is an SD-based cartridge and so forth, um, are available. Uh, programmable cartridges like the MaxFlash and... The cart, or I, I don't know, it's the exclamation point, cart. Um, <laughs> and there's even now, you can actually get a slave CPU. The, the Veronica cartridge is a 65816, which is the, what you'd have in an Apple TGS or a Super Nintendo, right. on a cartridge that you can tell it what to do from your 6502 Atari.
1: <laughs> wow.
3: And uh, for a while there, and I'm really hoping they come out with it again, um, there's something called the Dragon Cart, which was an Ethernet adapter. That'd be cool. So, whoo, that's the wide world of how your Atari XCGS works under the hood and talks to the outside. Wow.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I wanna thank for all the legions oh, yeah. of Atari XCGS fans. I want to thank Bill for what he just gave us. That was yeah. a mountain of information.
1: Yeah, that was definitely the, the, the details of the, the system.
2: And you will only get it here on the Atari ZX hard by hard podcast. I,
3: I promise I'll never do that again. <laughs> Bill's dissertation on the Atari 8 bit. You know, I, I think I'm trying to remember back to my college days. I might have actually done a paper where wow. I talked about all the Atari's hardware. Not, probably not even in that much detail. <laughs> and I'm sure I got an A on it because I was a big nerd. Oh, uh, that's great.
0: For first pussy, she looked all around After one for was nowhere to be found And then along came Atari We won a game, so we played around And then along came Atari Before a word, throw so to get it all down And then along came Atari diary The brought to so charge to get ahead. And then along came Atari Atari, power without the price
3: so can we talk about where to buy the XCGS? Who wants to, who wants to go on about where you collector-type people get one of them these days?
1: Well, I get mine, of course. Well, I don't have one. But when I get my old junk, of course, you go to a good old you know, Goodwill or Shop Goodwill. And eBay is a good source. Of course, the prices. You know? So I found that at Shop Goodwill, you get them as low as 50 bucks, But it depends on uh, – you know. of, of course, now we're having this podcast, I'll probably uh, shoot up, go through the roof. <laughs> but you know, eBay's got them too. I, I sometimes look to try to get an idea of the prices, and they're they're all over the place. I guess it's just the mood.
3: Well, Ferg's going to mention Ferg's going to mention our podcast, and he's going to have a Ferg effect on the XGS. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the well, Ferg effect is real.
2: Well, well, it better not be real right away because I got to get <laughs> one more. I got to get one more backup of a backup of a backup.
3: Yeah, the GS is a piece of crap. You guys don't want to buy it. Don't even bother. <laughs> <laughs>
1: reverse psychology all right yeah well then didn't build or uh, dave didn't you mention like bnc computer vision yeah yeah
2: Yeah. so what i wanted to do okay so let me just tell you just a quick story Mm -hmm. when i got my you know my um xcgs system the complete one it was and i I plugged it in it was completely dead it didn't do anything so what i ended up doing was I ended up going online, of course, uh, eBay. And on eBay, there's a seller called My Atari, which is uh, BNC Computer Visions.
3: And they've been around forever. They've been yeah. around since I remember.
2: Yeah. yeah. I've actually, uh, I think it's Bruce. Mm-hmm.
0: actually
2: had a, quite a few conversations where we had to stop the conversations because he had to go back to work. <laughs> uh, and uh, what I was able to buy from him was actually a brand new uh, motherboard. Because the when you open up the when you crack open up the Zegs, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: it's just one, it's crack just the one, Zegs, yeah. yeah, crack the Zegs. It's just one motherboard, one populated motherboard. So I was actually able just to pull out the original and swap it out and put in the brand new one that was fully tested by Bruce, and that was forty five dollars plus shipping. So oh. uh, if you have a dead Zegs, yeah, or some rotten Zegs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you want to
2: bring it back to life? Uh, he does sell those motherboards for forty-five. And like I said, it's completely populated. You just pull out the old one, you put in the new one, you're done. Now he also will sell you a used um, Zegs, which is basically the console uh, and the um, keyboard.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you can get used ones. Now I would tell you something. I bought the used one from him, eighty-five dollars. And when I took a look at it, I could not even tell it was used. Wow. As far as I'm concerned, it was minty. It was brand new. But a lot of these uh, systems that he's selling were originally came out of the original boxes. I think they were damaged or destroyed or they couldn't sell it anymore as the <clears throat> whole package. So I think he's removed parts from those deluxe uh, you know, Zeg systems. And he sells the keyboard and the console on its own. With of course the um, power supply, so for eighty five bucks you can get from him a fully tested, fully working um, XCGS, well XCGM game system. Oh wow! Now he so does you could
1: sell- get. I was going to say so you can, you can you know eBay they'll they'll say they test them. Goodwill does not. They basically turn them on and say good luck. So <laughs> for thirty five bucks more, you might as well go for something that that uh, that is assured that it'll work
2: he tests them completely wow uh, i think with salt i think one of the testing things are salt and um no he tests everything so when it once it leaves him and it comes to you you know that you've purchased a fully working uh atari uh GM. so hmm. um and then he has ones that are apparently more like they're new and they're 150 dollars. but i'm telling you the one i bought for 85 is so new looking so minty I wouldn't even need to spend 150 bucks, but he's a All great right. guy. I would definitely um, tell you if you want just the basic system, the console, the keyboard, and power supply, go directly to him. Don't even bother looking anywhere else because at least you're going to get one that uh, works 100%. Yeah.
1: You
2: know? And um, and th- and that's pretty much it. I know that uh, there's something called, I think um, you mentioned it, Bill, 8 8-bit fix?
3: Yeah, Paul uh, up, up in Oregon. He's, he's kind of a newcomer to the uh, Atari 8-bit sales and repair. And it looks like he's got, when I checked, about the same price. 85 used, 149 new. So same, same as uh, B&C. Vest Electronics uh, is another Californian-based Atari retailer that's been around forever, like since the 80s. Yeah. Um, I checked, and they had question mark, question mark, question mark for the price, and they're sold out. Um, yeah. Okay, And also, we have, we have down here on their notes, Amazon um, 189 to 209. So, yeah. I guess av- avoid Amazon sellers for the moment. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, support, support your local companies. Okay, so there, uh, things to consider uh, getting for your Zeg system. Uh, one thing, for example, we're probably aware that the uh, Atari computers like the um, 65XE and the uh, 130XE, they had those kind of, I don't know if you would call them mushy. They were mushy. Yes, mushy, mushy. Uh, yeah. Keyboards. Yep. Yep. Well, um, if you're a person who likes to type, likes to code, and you want the, that nice clicky keyboard, right. uh, Best Electronics actually has an upgrade kit, and um, I'm not sure about the price. I think it was around twenty five dollars. But I think it's on have... sale right now. Is it uh, on sale right, right
3: now, now? As of recording, or at least as of when I made the mi- made the notes, it was about fifteen U.S. Okay, then I got to go no- buy it. Normally, normally around thirty. Yeah.
2: Okay. Did get yeah. Okay, I'm gonna get that. Yeah, because that will. Uh, he told me that that will upgrade your keyboard to the nice clicky keyboard. Nice. Yeah. So that's one thing to get. Now, <clears throat> let's just talk about the power supply for a sec. Now, back in the cost-cutting days of Atari and Commodore computers, and maybe other companies as well, uh, they used to give you a uh, power supply that was this. Uh, epoxy resin filled monstrosity which once it no longer worked made a very effective melee weapon (laughs) now the thing is the problem with these epoxy filled power supplies is one that you can't you can't really repair them yeah uh and uh they are known to go bad Uh, and you know if they go bad they can actually blow some of your chips uh, on your on your motherboard. So um, and they're and they're getting pretty old now as well, right? So um, the the power the res uh, the epoxy filled power supply that comes with the Zags is a um, I think it's a five volt one amp power supply, which I think Brad called a ticking time bomb. So uh, he actually sells, it's an Atari original product. It's called the Atari XLXE uh, Repairable Rebuildable Power Supply. Mm. I purchased that one for myself. It was $27 plus shipping. And what it is, it is a 3-amp power supply. And it actually looks pretty good. It looks exactly, has the same kind of styling that the original 800 XLs had. Uh, so it looks really nice, it's, mm-hmm. uh, and it's open. You can open it, so if you ever have to repair it, you can. A bit on the heavy side, but not too bad. And, um, and you can get that for $27, like I said, plus shipping. And, um, and this is just a little uh, email that I got from um, Brad, and uh, this is what he says to me. Because I before I bought it, I wanted to know if it was compatible with the ZEX console. So he goes, yes, it is, David. Actually, the Atari, the Atari rebuildable uh, power supply is overkill for your Atari XE game system. This Atari, uh, the Atari XE game system will run on an Atari 5-volt uh, DC 1-amp power supply, but right at the upper limit of the power supply output. The new rebuildable Atari XL-XE power supply is a 5-volt uh, DC 3-amp power supply. I found that, um, you know, as this stuff is getting older and, you know, you want to make sure that you have it for as long as you can, I found that it was a pretty good purchase. So that's one thing you might want to look into if you want to, you know, have your Zegs for as long as possible. Now, another thing is some people have complained, and rightly so, that the cord between the keyboard and the console is very short, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. So um it uses the same fifteen pin uh connector like the Atari fifty two hundred joysticks use. Mm-hmm. So you can actually uh, pick up a six-foot extension cable. And it's and it usually if you look on eBay, it's usually uh called the SNK AES. Or, and MVS Famicom Neo Geo controller, keypad, joystick, extension, cable. <laughs> yeah. And I bought one. I just got it actually uh, uh, during this week. It's basically $12.50 with free shipping. So that way you can actually connect it to your Zags and have at least a whole six feet to move around. <laughs> I would. In, I would... T- until you need to hit start. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I didn't think about that for a second
3: there. Yeah. So the the cool thing about the SIO port is there are some devices you can plug into it that the Atari has no idea it's not a disk drive or a printer. Um, so the one I had back in the early 90s was called the SIO2 PC. And it's a real simple um, PC, you know, RS-232 plug on one end to SIO port on the other end with a little bit of uh, electronics in the middle and, like, LED blinky light. Um, And then you run some software on the PC that would emulate the Atari floppy disk drive. So it would respond to the commands and and send back the results to the Atari. Atari had no idea it wasn't talking to a disk drive. And you can actually, you know, copy from a real floppy to your PC or vice versa. And the Atari didn't care. Just, you know, you'd use the same software. Um, More recently, there's a USB version of that, uh, SIO2 USB. Um, uh, Atari Max, uh, Steve Tucker uh, makes the Ape cable and uh, has software specifically for that. That also works with a SIO2PC and USB called APE. Um, The device that I have and prefer is called the SIO2SD. And instead of having an external PC to connect it to, it's actually a standalone device. So it's a little, basically a little mini computer with some buttons, uh, you know, clicky buttons for me to push to interact with it, and a backlit LCD screen for me to see what disk image I'm I'm loading um, and mounting on which floppy drive that the Atari can see. Um, And you know, I, I fill it up with. Uh, disk images off of my PC. I just plug my uh, SD, you know, fat formatted SD card into my uh, PC, my laptop, and put some files on it. And then I walk over and I stick it into the SIO2SD, turn on the Atari, and it starts booting up off of it just as if it's a disk drive. So that's a really, really convenient way of getting basically disk files off the internet and playing around with them on on the Atari actual hardware. And of course, if you want a real floppy drive, there's the uh, Atari 1050... Uh, xf five fifty one and so forth these are all going to be five and a quarter inch um, and you 're going to want um, single density discs i 've once upon a time been handed a couple of more enhanced density discs that you 'd run on like a ms dos pc back in the day and the Atari isn 't able to read them so you need to specifically get the the lower end of the the floppy disk because those ones only hold between like ninety and one hundred and eighty kilobytes per side so hmm.
1: that 's interesting because I, I read an article where they they said that the, the the floppy, it, it really didn't matter. It was the that's uh, how the drive was formatting it. But uh, I guess that might be the case. It was for me. The Atari couldn't, yep.
3: couldn't format these disks. I stuck them on my wall as art for a while. No. <laughs> <laughs> what else am I going to do with them? <laughs>
1: uh, don't, don't throw away floppies. I, I unless you want to buy a hardware version, that's probably smarter. Yep. Because keep I, floppies are probably <laughs> uh, you know taking time bomb as well as that power supply.
3: So um, so there are other kind of controllers that you can get for playing different kinds of games. I'm, I'm assuming most of the XC game system games are going to be joystick and or light gun. Um, but as we mentioned, there's the trackball. And uh, uh, at least some of the trackball models on the Atari actually had a joystick mode. So you're not going to get the fine precision movement, but you can at least have a big ball to spin around to make things go left and right and up and down. Um, there's a light pen, which if you really want to cheat at your light gun games... <laughs> <laughs> or if you want to get some art software or, or play around in BASIC to, to do some drawing. Um, there's also a, a, the Atari Touch tablet or the Koala Pad. My brother had the Koala Pad, and it's Commodore. Yeah. Um, basically, think a Wacom tablet, but you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. And then, this is the big one. This is the one everyone gets, um, is the Sega Genesis GamePad. So what you'd plug into your, your Genesis. Um, it's got a start button and then three fire buttons, A, B, and C. The B button is mapped to the fire button on the Atari, and that's basically all you need, all, all you need to know for almost all games. Because you know, I've written one of the very few games on the Atari Eight Bit that actually takes advantage of the uh, the other button on the Genesis pad, and it's it's optional. You can use a regular joystick in my game. Oh, um, cool. But uh, but for the seventy eight hundred listeners out there who have not yet discovered Phil's seventy eight hundred game by game podcast, or haven't heard of Ed Ladin and his controllers. Um, if if you're sick of, of wrenching your wrist around the quote pro controller on the 7800, um, get Ed Laden's, uh Siegel 78, and that lets you plug in a Genesis controller and use two buttons um, for the different action buttons on the 7800. So for your two button games like Commando and and Akari Warriors and stuff, where you need you know shoot versus throw grenade or what have you. So
2: well, if you want to hear about real sacrilege, I'll tell you. I um actually <laughs> off a guy from um, Atari Age. He modded uh, Nintendo, the original NES controllers, Mm -hmm. uh, for my uh, Atari
3: 7800. Oh, nice. Yeah. See, to me, I remember opening up an NES controller trying to figure out. Like, it had fewer pins. And I thought, like, how does it actually get up, down, left, right, A, B, start, select... With like five pins that didn't make any sense to me. I opened it up and had a chip inside, and I said, Well, I have absolutely no idea how this works. What it does is it it kind of encodes it and sends it as a serial message. The Genesis controller is basically just like an Atari joystick controller up, down, left, right. Those are four different signals. And then B, fire button, is another signal. C is another signal, but on the seventy eight hundred, they did it differently than the Sega, so that's why you need that little bit of electronics in between, like the the Seagull, or you know, you can build your own with whatever bits of electronics. Um, but yeah, like a Nintendo controller, you probably just completely remove the electronics and just put a new.
2: Yeah, I think or you pretty maybe much... or maybe
3: like pull the chip out and rewired everything to talk to the yeah, to the joystick Yeah,
2: pretty much, portal. pretty much. Yeah.
1: All right. Um, I think the last thing we we're going to talk about is emulators. Well, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I I've used a couple of emulators. I should spend. I mean, I usually what I'll do is I'll find ones that are the most easy to use, and I think that um, I think that's Atari 800. I think that seems to be the easiest one. Or... Now, maybe it was 800 Win Plus. Now I'm now I'm I'm guessing because I, I I need to spend more time with these things. But yeah, of course, you've got the Atari 800 uh, one uh, for Linux, Windows, Mac OS, and and more. Uh, I assume that's, I, I have it on
3: my dream. I have it on my Dreamcast.
1: Wow, that's yep. <laughs> that's amazing. Like
3: an old version. It's real. I mean, you can't use the keyboard with that stupid Dreamcast controller. It's so I like. I can never remember how to actually type. But yeah. for real simple arcade games, it's it's fine. But I, you know, I have no use for it. It was just a novelty. But yeah, it's super, yeah. super portable, super portable. That's awesome. Well, if if you go down this list, you notice a lot of these were based off of Atari 800 because <laughs> it's yeah, open yeah. source. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you got Atari 800 Win, like I previously mentioned, um, uh, Plus, and uh, that's based on the Atari 800, and it's Windows only. Then you got Altera, which is a Windows emulator, uh, but it's got debugging uh, options, and uh, it's popular with coders. I think, uh, doesn't it Rob use that to debug some of those games? I think you might have mentioned that. Yeah, I could probably.
3: I, I have yet to play with it. I need to... I need to... Fire up a Windows emulator and, and actually, I, I think it,
1: I think it runs under Wine, maybe or,
3: or oh, I forget what, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's 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 what all the cool kids are using.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to do debugging, do <clears throat> um, you got Atari Plus Plus. Uh, it's original fork of the Atari 800 for Linux and Windows. You've got Colleen, which is based on the 800 for the Android. I've actually got that on my phone, but I need to get the uh, ROMs on it, so I haven't played with that yet. Uh, PC it works X- it works surprisingly well. It, it does really. If, well, I, I always, if I just
3: want to say look, look, it's Star Raiders on my phone. You know, I yeah. guess
1: there it is. That's great to put all the emulators on your phone and then play them when you get a long flight or something like that. It's mm-hmm. like um, you got PCX Former, which is a good old MS DOS and Windows emulator back in the nineties. So if you've got an old system just sitting around, you want to put it on there, there's a there's an Atari emulator for you on that.
3: Well, uh, I, th- I believe he's still supporting that one. So I think that one still runs on on more modern systems. Oh wow. Uh, and then this um this one is actually one of the reasons that I was reminded of this one was uh, recently on on um, was it Antic? They had an episode where they uh, actually a couple episodes. One of them was a specific um, post that was an iOS emulation guide. Um, mm-hmm. iOS devices you can't run emulators on typically because <clears throat> so you have to uh, jailbreak them first. Yeah, and then un- under a DOS emulator, you then run the Atari emulator on your <laughs> on your iPhone. <laughs> so. It apparently well? works. I mean, it's- I don't know. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't have an iPhone, so I skipped that episode.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Hey, there's, if there's a will, there's a way. You know, Definitely. But uh, we also got Mess, which I think recently um, got incorporated into MAME. Uh, MAME is a multiple arcade uh, machine emulator. Some of you arcade people probably recognize that. Um, I actually used it for the 7800 when I was doing some of the reviews for the 700 podcast, so it worked pretty well. Say. And then, of course, mess is uh, used by the Internet Archive, a historical software archive, um, using a, it looks like JavaScript mess, mm-hmm. and allows it animation on the web browsers, which blows me away. I mean, just be able to go out and bring up a browser and play old games is awesome. I'm no try installing that. necessary. Yeah, it's, um, I've used it for some of the arcade games, and it works pretty slick. I haven't had any issues with it, so I should try it for the Ataris. Okay, believe it or not, people,
2: we've come to the end.
1: Wow, that's a lot of information.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, use it wisely. So we want. I want to personally thank whoever is left (laughs) listening to the podcast at this actual time right now.
3: Ferg, Ferg, wake up, Ferg.
2: Yeah. Uh, Did we, guys? Did we get any uh, user, well, listener feedback? Well, we wouldn't have had. uh, uh, listener feedback since uh we just finished recording now pretty much did we have any feedback. uh did we have any user feedback? I know we went out on Facebook and asked people if they wanted to uh put some input as we were recording this episode. Uh, Most did we people get anything?
1: I, I pretty much just saw people saying, you know, thumbs up or favoring and stuff. I didn't get anything okay. personally, nothing in the emails. Okay. Uh, I, think, I think I think a
3: few people a few people said they wanted to, get to submit something before we started, but I think we maybe didn't give them, a, give them a, enough lead time once we actually had a record date. Yeah. Uh, I know. So. It was only I like, mean, they had all this they had all this time in the meantime. I don't know what they've been yeah. doing. Yeah, like Probably
2: two weeks. Like how long have we been saying that we're going to do this podcast? Yeah, Six yeah. Months? Oh, like three months. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> okay,
1: we'll cut this out.
2: <laughs> no, don't this brag, is awesome. I, no, 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 this is staying in. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we gave people a heads up for quite some time.
1: We'll guilt, we'll guilt them into it. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you send us some connections, some uh, submissions?
2: That's it. Okay, so people <laughs> listen. Uh, the, like I said, the people who are left, uh, please note to, uh, to you that the next episode, episode one, will be shorter in duration. Yes. And therefore, we would really like some um, uh, listener feedback. And any um, inform- you know, any kind of comments or anything on the show, and uh, let us know. And, um, and well, I don't
1: it. think we have we don't have any games even lined up yet. So if you have got some have, favorites, have we picked a game? Well, are we going to go in yeah. order, or are we just going to randomly choose? I'm
2: going to Was there?
3: Well, I mean, the, the games came out across two years, and I, I don't know if there was any particular month listed for any yeah. of them that I could. Right. So, so. Well, uh,
2: well, honestly, to tell you the truth, this uh, has been such a monumental task to finally get Episode Zero <laughs> recorded. I haven't even thought about games yet. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, we'll figure that out. But if, if somebody's got an idea for one of their favorite games, they can definitely submit it. We'll definitely consider check, or tackling that one first.
2: Okay. So. Awesome. Cue the outro music.
1: Okay. And music. <laughs> bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks, bye. everybody.
2: That's the end of episode zero of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart Podcast. Now that you've heard from us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit us on our Facebook page at the Atari Zegs Cart by Cart Podcast. Give us a suggestion, your feedback, your input. Let us know how you like the show. Also, you can visit us at our website at XeGS. 8, like the number 8 bit.com zegs8bit.com Go to the contact page and you can send us your suggestions audio submissions, emails Also, you can email us directly at f-e-e-d b-a-c-k at xcgs number 8, bit.com feedback at zegs8bit.com We hope to hear from you don't disappoint us. Take care. So long. See you soon. Bye-bye. Welcome, fellow Antari... Oh, geez, forget that. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's Atarians, not Antarians. Okay. Antarians. That's a completely different race. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Take 15.
3: <laughs> XE Game System
2: Specs. No. <clears throat> All right. Okay, um, so, okay, take 15. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Completely lost our goal of the first episode being 45 minutes. Yeah. So, oh, uh, was
3: that a goal? Oh, I, I knew it was going <laughs> to be long. Okay. Okay. I'm going to eat a piece of the chocolate. Yep. Did Hmm. I
2: get, or did I just hear things? It is late for me, by the way.
1: (laughs) Well, you can always read it over and just, you know. Okay, so
2: let's just start again. Let's just, Bill. Not only because, you know, our legions of fans may write in. In in despair. (laughs) How dare you? Legion of fan? Is that what you
3: said? (laughs) Legions.
2: Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) 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 Woo! We did it! Two yeah. hours and sixteen minutes.
1: <laughs> Get the audio hatchet ready. <laughs> chop, 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 chop,
0: chop. I don't know I don't I don't know if we have enough for a blooper reel.